All right, so I figured I'd start us off with a prayer. So let's pray. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory, forgive our sins, banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Rob and I decided to break our catechesis up into two parts. Rob is going to be focusing on death and dying in light of the resurrection of Jesus. But before we explore this, we felt it was important to articulate the Old Testament understanding of death and its relationship with grace. So that's what I'll be focusing on today. Uh, this is obviously a huge topic, so I'm going to be very brief so that Rob and I both have enough time. Uh, but most of what I say today comes from uh, Professor John Walton, who was a professor of mine at Wheaton College. Uh, so if you want to learn more about the uh, ancient Israelite idea of death and afterlife, uh, I'd recommend looking at uh, one of his books. Okay, so we don't have uh, much data regarding the Hebrew understanding of the afterlife because they didn't really put much emphasis on it. Instead, it's extremely clear that their emphasis was on physical, bodily life on earth. Um, so we see this in the first two chapters of the Bible, and especially in Genesis 2-7, where it says, Then the Lord God fashioned the human hummus from the soil and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living creature. So right away we see that to be alive in the Hebrew understanding is to be a physical body enlivened and animated by the breath of God. In the Old Testament understanding, breathing was not merely just intaking oxygen, it was the sign that God's breath was dwelling inside of you. So this can be thought of as God's first act of grace to humanity and to every human being, to give them his own breath, allowing them to be nurtured by his life. And this breath was not merely given to humans, but everything that breathes receives its uh, life from the same divine source, and all of them praise him with the life that he's been given. So the earth, uh, the land of the living, this is where God's presence was active and effective. Um, so in the Hebrew understanding, to be alive was to have a sort of union with God. However, this also means that the opposite is true. So to be dead was to be cut off from God's life-giving breath. In the Old Testament, there is no distinction between physical death and spiritual death, as we might think of it. Um, to physically die was to be cut off from God's spirit and to fall outside of his sphere of dominion. Um, so I have a diagram of the way that the ancient Hebrews understood the, uh, the universe. Um, so you see that they basically conceptualized it as like a giant snow globe inside of an ocean. Um, so there's water all around. Um, and there's this little pocket of air, and that's where we dwell. But underneath, uh, in the middle of this like, island that they thought to be the earth, is the underworld, the realm of the dead, and they knew that as Sheol. Um, so when somebody died, they'd be buried, and their spirit would descend down into Sheol. 
Um, but the spirit is a diminished form of the person. Um, it has no power, it has no personality. Um, it's not quite annihilation, but uh, it's not afterlife in the way that we tend to think of it. It's a diminished sort of existence. Um, so as we mentioned before, life is the quintessential sign of God's presence and power. So to be alive is to be united with God. And so the realm of the dead is cut off from God. Um, so we see that in Psalm 6, 5, uh, for death holds no mention of you. In Sheol, who can acclaim you? And then in Isaiah 38, 18, for Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. So death is, is a place of where you are, you are away from God. You are separated from God. Um, and we also know that from Job 7, 9, it's permanent. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down into Sheol does not come up. But it's not a place of reward or punishment, again, like we tend to think of heaven or hell. Um, every single person who dies goes down to Sheol. And uh, this is regardless of status, of moral effort, or faith, or relationship of God. Everyone goes here. And also, none of these things can improve your status once you're there. Everyone experiences the same fate. Everyone goes to the same place. Um, and a good example of this is found in the story of Job. Uh, the book of Job essentially asks the question, is obedience to God worth it? And it's really important to notice that not once does anyone in the story appeal to the reward in the afterlife. So no one thinks, oh, we suffer here, but maybe we'll receive some sort of uh, compensation once we die. Any benefit to obeying God had to be attained in life because no one would receive it in death. So I mentioned earlier that Sheol is a separation from God, but this shouldn't make us think that Sheol is, uh, is in any way like the later concept of hell. It's not thought to be a place of torture. Uh, there's no fire. There's no demons prodding you with pitchforks. It's a place of negation. It's a place where you lose the good things that you had in life. Um, so the Mesopotamians, who uh, really had almost the exact view as the Israelites did, and as the, the view articulated in the Old Testament, they described the underworld as the place where you eat dust. So if you, if you can imagine eating dust, it would be completely unsatisfying. It's not so much of a form of active torture, but it makes you dehydrated, and it makes you long for the taste of real food. And this is characteristic of the whole experience of death for the Hebrews. Death was the ultimate good, or life was the ultimate good, and so death, the loss of life, is the loss of this good. It's neutrality, it's negation. And so when you're in Sheol, it's not so much torture, but it's a painful reminder of the good thing that you used to have and that you crave. So now we're going to move on to dying in the Old Testament. Uh, so in the Old Testament, dying is essentially hurtling towards a hopeless end. Uh, they had no hope of a pleasant afterlife or of an ultimate resurrection, but this doesn't mean that they went without God's grace. For the ancient Israelites, even in the midst of this downward spiral, God was still gracious, and they saw God's graces all around them. So uh, they saw this in a couple of ways. The first is that they saw God's grace in that he provides wisdom as people age. Uh, so we have a few verses here. Wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. A gray head is the crown of glory. It's found in the way of righteousness. You shall rise up before the gray-headed, and honor the, Lord, uh, honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. 
So there's, there's this huge emphasis on aging as something uh, that provides wisdom. Uh, so God provides those who are closest with death with more glory and provides them with wisdom that excels the youthful. Another example of this is in Joshua 13. God tells Joshua, you are old and advanced in years. And in our context, we might expect God to say something like, therefore retire and let somebody else take over. But uh, he gives him the most important job of his whole career. He tells him to divide Israel. And this isn't uh, in spite of his age in the Hebrew understanding, it's because of his age. He's, been, uh, he's grown in wisdom and understanding and now he's finally ready to get this task that God has given him. So they also saw God's grace in that he provides children, allowing people a means of extending their influence and their significance beyond the grave. So in the Old Testament, this is probably the most prominent way that they see, that they see God's grace manifest. And as many of you probably know, there's a huge emphasis on having an heir in the Old Testament. So think of the story of Abraham and Sarah, hoping for God to provide them with Isaac, or Hannah praying for Samuel. So they didn't have any hope of an immortality. So having children was the only way of extending their life after they were to die. In the ancient world, it was extremely important for people to speak your name after you died. Uh, the Egyptians, who were the close neighbors of the Israelites, even believed that a piece of, per of a person's soul would only live as long as their name was spoken. So for anyone that's seen the Pixar movie Coco, this is essentially what's depicted in Israelite or uh, Egyptian mythology. Uh, so only kings or extremely prominent people could guarantee that their name would be spoken throughout the ages. Therefore, it was very important to have children because they would remember you and they would pass on your memory to their children. So your name could uh, be called throughout the ages. This adds a whole new layer of significance to the story of Abraham and Sarah. So Isaac is more than just their son. He's their only shot at having a lasting significance. He's their only shot at the form of immortality that was available to them. So think of the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 22. I will surely bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and on the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will use your name as a blessing because you have obeyed me. So all of the focus is on the continuation of his memory and his significance through his children. So they don't have this hope for immortality and so children is this way of extending their life even past the grave. And children and legacy are graces that God has given his people to ease the pain of death and dying. So why is this important? Why should we focus on uh, the Israelite understanding of death? It seems pretty bleak, um, and we know of the hope that we have in Jesus. Well, I think for a couple reasons. Uh, we focus on the grace that's been given to us through God's act in Jesus, as we should, but sometimes we forget that God is gracious to us in all sorts of ways uh, that we tend to think of as just ordinary life. So wisdom, children, legacy, and life, these are all ways that God's grace is manifest to us and to all people, even in the midst of death and dying. And understanding the Old Testament perspective can help us uh, realize that. However, it's also important because it highlights the very real experience of death as a tragedy. We have hope in the resurrection, but this hope is rooted in a special revelation, the revelation of Jesus's resurrection. And outside of this, we have no evidence that death is anything but the end. So the Christian understanding of death is in some ways very unnatural. 
it's, rooted in, it's not rooted in ordinary experience. It's rooted in a trust in God's character uh, and in the revelation given to us through the gospel. But the Hebrew understanding, on the other hand, is rooted in what death actually feels like. We recognize wisdom and childbearing and legacy as graces that help ease our pain, but it really feels like death is the end. And we do not naturally embrace death. We recoil from it because we yearn for bodily life. And it really does feel as though death has the final word, just as the people of the Old Testament thought it did. And the Old Testament validates this feeling. It validates our mourning. Even as we strive to hope and trust in Christ, death feels so permanent. And we don't have to be ashamed of this because the old people of the Old Testament felt the exact same way. It is good to hate death and to yearn for bodily life. It's biblical. And it is only through the gospel that we can hope otherwise. The hope that one day death will finally and fully be defeated and that we will be restored to physical bodily life, enlivened and animated by God's breath. And so remembering the Old Testament perspective should lead us to crave for the gospel, which tells us that death doesn't actually have the last word. So I think I'm going to invite Rob to come up, and he's going to talk to us about uh, dying and death post-Christ. Thanks, Austin. I, it's rather uh, it's an irony that I asked Austin to talk about the grace of aging. I, <laughs> I look at him, you know. Um, and Austin, your beautiful cheeks, I'm going to make them blush now. <laughs> what a privilege it's been for me to come alongside Austin and think through these things and have Austin think for me through these things. <laughs> um, aging and dying were kind of crazy, I, you know, realizing as I was approaching this uh, and thinking about it. I've been, been thinking about dying for the last eight months, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to think about something else today. But for the next few minutes, you're going to have to think about dying with me. Uh, keep it in mind. Um, and my main thought is love is as strong as death. So hold that in front of you. Um, and I hope that I don't forget to keep advancing these slides. That's a good one, but we, won't, we don't want to keep lingering on that one. Um, 100 years from now, my brother told me about a button. He saw 100 years from now, all new people. It's funny until you realize its personal implications. And then it's not so funny anymore. Um, and it speaks to the paradox of death. Death is a paradox. It's the only unavoidable part of life. Death is a necessity. So much for freedom and free will, right? And as Austin had uh, uh, taught us from the Old Testament, we understand death as being natural. The Old Testament understanding dust to dust, dust, dying of old age, surrounded by family with a proper burial, was held to be natural, right, and proper. So this is a good thing. But, and it's a big but, death is also, as we know, tragic. It's catastrophic. It is revealed, as 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us, it's revealed to be the last enemy. It's our arch enemy. We don't simply die as a neutral biological fact. We die by having turned away from our creator, our only source of life. And that is the central paradox of death, around which you can uh, 
bring to mind many, many issues and problems and conflicts we have with death. That paradox is central. It informs all the other paradoxes that surround death. Uh, we don't just live in the valley of the shadow of death. We cast the shadow of death. Death is in us. So in the face of death, our instinct is to survive and our desire is to be alive. Not to just be, but to be with our loved ones. And we tend to rationalize the tragedy of death. I mean, we say things about death, euphemisms, that it's the end of the repeated daily struggle. We're not here to mourn the death of this person, but to celebrate a life. Ah, this person is finally at home. God has another angel. You can think of some, perhaps, right, that you've heard? In some ways, these are offensive because they minimize the tragedy of death that the Hebrews understood. And they're not really how we feel when someone we love dies. Years after my father died, my mother kept calling for him. Roger. Roger wasn't there. Not you, Roger. <laughs> but grace is also a paradox. Unlike death, grace is not a necessity, but it's a gift. Ephesians 2.8, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what sin, that's what we're owed because of the sin in us. That's the wages we have, the consequences. But the gift of God is eternal life. Grace is a gift. And unlike death, it's not natural to us. It must come from outside of us. It must break into our death and our dying. And... Unlike death, death, grace is marvelous. But what's interesting is that we resist grace just as we deny death. Grace runs counter to our instinct to strive, to prove, to earn, to own our lives, to be rulers of ourselves and of our destiny, to somehow beat death. And you know, there are many in, our, in, our, in, uh, in the U.S. today who are working hard to beat death, Silicon Valley. Just ask you know, some of those guys who have the money to try to invest, to try to live as long as they can. Immortality. But I tell you what, immortality is a poison chalice if you go about it in that way. So we've got the two paradoxes of grace, uh, death and grace, and uh, it takes a paradox to resolve another paradox. The paradox of grace is God's response to the paradox of death. Grace is all about death. If you think about it, God must die to give it. Hebrews 12.2 says, He suffered death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. God must die to give it. And, of course, we must die to receive it. Romans 6.4, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. And what is baptism? It's, it's a, sacram a sacramental enactment of our dying. We die with Christ so that we might be raised with Christ. But we've got to die first. We want, it, we want, the, we want Easter before... We don't want to go through Lent. So we move from Adam to Christ by voluntarily using our death. And what gives us the strength to die? It's grace. We resist both death and grace, yet together they are the only way we experience life. 
I want to illustrate this this morning in the brief time. Who's going to shout at me when our time is up? It's 1028. We're still good. Um, two stories. Uh, predictably, of course, the death of Jesus, the overarching narrative of the death of Jesus. And I want to tell you a little bit about my father's death. Consider the first sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited their life in God's presence. They brought death upon themselves. What does God do? It's so interesting what God does at that point. He asks a question. You know, you know what that question is? Where are you? At the moment that Adam brought condemnation and death upon himself, grace starts with the question. It's not a command. It's not an indictment. It's not an accusation. And God is not asking that playing some game of hide and seek with Adam and Eve. It's a searching question. I guess you could call it a search and rescue question. And after Adam and Eve's disobedience, God took the initiative in seeking them out to bring his presence near to them. Because there's no way they could bring themselves close to him after they sinned. And God is dealing with death for the first time. Mortality is not a property of God. Uh, and if you look at the end of Je uh, Genesis chapter 3, the mini-narrative of, of the fall, it concludes with a series of grace notes that Austin alluded to in his talk. Uh, grace continues for Adam and Eve with God's provision. Where there is death, there is grace in the Old Testament. Dust to dust. What happens here? Adam becomes aware of his own mortality. He's brought face to face with death. He's got to look at it. And after he does so, what does he do? He looks at Eve and he gives her a name. She hasn't been named up at this point. And Adam names Eve, she who gives life, which is, of course, carried on in perpetuity with, uh, with uh, Adam and Eve's children, which again, Austin mentioned. But there's something more. Adam and Eve, they both take on proper names. They take on individual personhood. They are not just man and woman. This is important. We are more than just our bodies. Love, which is as strong as death, is always directed to a person with that person's personality, with that person's particularity, even when the body is gone. But bodies are important. What does God do? Adam and Eve look at themselves. They realize they're naked. And he clothes them in garments of skin. Brought face to face with death, Adam and Eve want to hide their bodies. Why do they want to hide their bodies? They're ashamed. It's a loss of innocence. And that's the kind of death that we have at infancy's end, that loss of innocence. And then, of course, what happens is... It's a love-hate relationship with your body, a conflicted understanding of the body, what it is, what its purpose is. And I think that ever since Adam and Eve had their problem with their bodies, shame, we have been fixated on our bodies ever since, trying to make them as least dead as possible. We don't know how to treat our bodies as a receptacle, a receptacle of both death and grace. We don't know how to honor the body without worshiping the body. And so often, under the pretext that the body is a temple, we worship the body and starve our souls. We're confused. 
And of course, finally, the final grace note here, God bars Adam and Eve from the tree of life, which if they ate, they would be damned to immortality outside of God's presence. And that is what Revelation 2.11 calls the second death, and it is the definition of hell. God says, we cannot let that happen. So, Genesis 3. It's a passage that's based on death. It's bracketed by death. Dust to dust. There's no tree of life accessible to Adam and Eve. Death is everywhere, but it's shot through with life. It's shot through with grace. And this ancient and timeless story sets the pattern of grace and dying. And the paradox of grace is that it's most evident not in our living bodies, but in our dying bodies. And dying brings out the best in us because it reveals the extent of God's grace. So I told you I would uh, take a brief look with you at my father and my father's dying. Um, where's the red uh, pointer here? At the top? Yeah. Oh, never mind. <laughs> my dad is a little one sitting on his father's lap. Uh, my grandfather, Saxby Aristobulus Lewis, what a great name. <laughs> um, engineer worked in the Panama Canal. Died early, left uh, the five to be with my, with my dad's mom. And my dad growing up, he looks like a cherub there, he was anything but. He was a hellion. Grew up in Queens. Um, when he uh, was a little bit older, he smoked with his friends uh, coffee out of a pipe, big blue clouds of smoke, coffee smoke. Um, he was so bad that my mom would have to lock him in the closet. He'd kick the door down. Just a little guy. Um, and he used all that energy and transferred it into becoming a missionary, which is a good thing tough, persistent, enduring, and a fighter. My father died of an inoperable brain tumor, a glioblastoma that sits like a toad in the middle of the dictionary. It's a horrible word, glioblastoma. He died in September of 1999 when he was 75 years old. It's a good life, more than three score years and ten, but still he was too darn young to die. He died two and a half months after the tumor was discovered. My sister and her husband had flown my dad to Australia from Bali, Indonesia for a checkup after he complained of double vision. As soon as the cancer was diagnosed, my sister called me to tell me the news. I was in New York at the time. And one week later, I flew from New York to Bali where I joined my other siblings to, who had come from around the world to be with my dad and to care for him as he died. And we attended to him night and day. We did everything for him, from bathing him, to helping him in the bathroom, to feeding him, to reading stories and scripture to him. My father read through the entire Bible uh, in every year, and this is a practice we helped him maintain right through to the last week of his life. And in that time together, all of us prepared my father for his death. And as we did so, we helped him maintain the same disciplines and rituals that had sustained his life. Singing, praying, and eating a lot. 
my dad retained a hearty appetite right to the end. And we did these things with him. Life with my father in those two and a half months was telescoped, it was intensified. So we not only cared for him, but we lived with him the final weeks of his life. And keep in mind, we went to boarding school. We weren't with my mom and dad growing up. At the age of six, we went away to boarding school, flew away. We did not have my mom and dad, but in his dying, we who had always been apart were together. And that was a grace of God for all of us. And in this way, we participating in his dying as we, in a way that we were not able to participate in his living. All those times we were away from him. We, we, we were with dad. We enacted with him the liturgy of his death right up to the moment that he died. And then my sisters, I was gone at the time, my sisters actually bathed and prepared his body for burial. We savored all these moments with him. And they ran the gamut of his personality, parts of which emerged as he died. Things I'd never known about my father. In some ways, we got more of him rather than less of him until, of course, we had none of him. Catherine Mannix, in her marvelous book with the end in mind, she's a palliative uh, care doctor in England, puts it this way. What a privilege to be able to observe families as they are forged in a furnace of love and belonging so often with its fiercest heat at the ebbing of a life. And then she writes these marvelous words. It is the fact that every day counts us down that makes each one such a gift. There are only two days with fewer than 24 hours in each lifetime, sitting like bookends astride our lives. One is celebrated every year, yet it is the other that makes us see living as precious. We had some painfully precious moments with my father. By the way, I forgot to advance. One month before he died, wearing a hat that says boss on it. Surrounded by his grandchildren, with the exception of my two kids, Chelsea and Bentley, who had to be in the States at the time. Poignant moments. At one point when I was sitting, uh, sitting with my dad in his bed, he held up his hand and he started to go like this with his fingers. And uh, he said, uh, he pointed this one finger and he said, uh, Beeman. And then, and then number five, Roger. Beeman Roger. And I said, Dad, what, what are you saying? Beeman Roger. I said, yeah, you've got five siblings. Beeman is the oldest. You're the youngest. And then it dawned on me. What he was trying to say is, this was not right. Beeman should go first, then Ruth, and then Dory, and then Alden, and then Roger. It was the wrong sequence. He was dying too soon. But you don't, you can't make up your end. When it comes, it comes. There were comical moments. At one point, he turned to my mother and he sternly said, Lelia, our marriage is no longer producing any humor. And my dad was a humorous guy. He loved humor. But uh, my mom wasn't accommodating him anymore. Once as I was reading the Song of Solomon, which was his designated reading for the day, I was reading away, and uh, yeah, I, I caught my father looking at my mother, who was in her night shift. Oh, my. <laughs> and then he looked at me sheepishly, and he said something to me, which I won't say here. It's <laughs> tremendous wisdom and compassion that came from him as he died. He said, Rob, I see things simply. I'm a meat and potatoes guy. 
I see things in black and white, but the Lord works in his own way. We must not judge. In the context of what I was going through at the time, that was a word straight from God through my dying father's lips. And then there were heartbreaking moments. My father, of course, was a missionary. We, moved, uh, we went to a district in an area called Klungkung. Its population was 107,000. My father walked through that whole area and visited every home to bring the gospel to them. And at some point as he was dying, I was taken to the bathroom. His right foot, his foot that had carried him so faithfully, stopped working and it hung limp. And as I helped him out of the bathroom to his bedroom, he turned and he snapped at his foot as it dragged along behind him. Come on, come on, you crummy foot. Oh my, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. One of the things my dad liked to say, all this, and he generally was uh, saying all this as he pointed at a pot roast or a steak. He hated Indonesian food to his dying day. <laughs> he said, all this and heaven too. But he tended to focus on all this even when he was dying. And as best we could, we did all this with my dad while he died. We kept a lively vigil with him. This does not look like such a lively vigil. But here's my point. Several of the books I read uh, as I prepared for this talk talked about the way, spoke, uh, wrote, wrote of the way that we want to make death as invisible as possible. So many of the problems we have today, and this is from John Baer, by the way. Read anything from John Baer about death, anything at all by John Baer, St. Vladimir Seminary. Um, the problems we have today, consumerism, it comes from the fact that we don't see death, that we are centered on ourselves, we are centered upon enjoying this life to the full, maximizing our potential, realizing who we are, finding ourselves, all of that stuff. And John Barrett has this marvelous line, he says, in a sense, we live today as hedonists and die as Platonists. The desacralization, I don't, I don't think that's a word, but anyway, John Barrett uses it, so that's the it must be. The desacralization of the end of life leads to the hedonization of the middle of life. And when we live, it's all about the body. And when we die, we don't even concern ourselves with the body. We just come to, uh, together without the person being there, and we celebrate their life. And I realize that sometimes exigent circumstances bring us to that point where we can't have them there. But the point is we don't participate in the liturgy of death. And when we don't do that, our whole horizon becomes totally imminent. And John Baer, and I've read this in other books too, by the palliative care doctor, says we need to take back death just as we took back birth from the hospital into the home. Birth wives and death wives. They're both important. And they have very similar jobs. And what it means for us to be Christians, it's to, it means to live in the path that Christ has shown us, a path of self-sacrificial love, of dying to self, and even the path, the way of asceticism, which we can practice in Lent. I love what Francois Fenelon said, if we die in part every day of our lives, we shall have but little to do on the last day. I am not going to finish this talk. I'll have to stop when the time is up, but that's all right. 
When I arrived in Bali, my father knew I was coming, and he was sitting on the edge of his bed. He was waiting for me. When I walked into his room, he clapped his hands, and he exclaimed, Robbie's here. Three weeks later, when I said goodbye to my father, my face inches away from his, I searched his eyes for a brightening of some kind of recognition, but he no longer knew who I was. The last I saw of my dad. In a, in a series of so many goodbyes in our lives, this last goodbye was the most poignant, and we couldn't even say goodbye. He had lost sight of me. But for three weeks, he was fully available to me and I to him. I got to know every inch of my father's body because I had to do everything for him. His dying body became intimately familiar to me. This certainly is a particular grace of dying. And it's a grace that the dying person would not naturally concede, nor another naturally want. After all, the body is a sanctuary of privacy, but not in death. It must give up its privacy. As the body dies, as it breaks down, it manifests its fragile physicality in ways that can only call for grace. And this is how Christ communicates his grace to us, not with his glorious body, but his broken body. Even Jesus' resurrected body bore the signs of his wounds. My father's broken body was devoured by a malignant, but I don't think malign, I don't think evil. It was just doing what glioblastomas do. My father's body was devoured by that tumor. But Jesus' broken body absorbs the truly malign work of sin and evil. That which we call the second death, revealed to be the last enemy. Jesus absorbs sin and death, but he is full of, John 1.14, grace and truth. And that's our life. And that's the grace of bodily death that turns death's tragedy into grace's triumph. Um, this brings us back to the first question. God to Adam and Eve, where are you? God does not ask a question he can't answer. There's a second question in this story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus is asking, God, where are you? In his dying breath, Jesus senses separation from God. What God asked of the first Adam, the second Adam now asks of God. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus does not hide. He does not shrink away. He hurls this question at his father. And his dying question makes the whole world shake. And Paul's all, I did read his book on grace. He describes this question as the apogee of grace, for it could, could be answered only from grace, grace to grace, in dying. Death means we cannot experience the ecstasy of eventual reunion without the agony of present separation. If someone you love has died, you live in perpetual Lent. Lent is all about lament. And indeed, we have fallen in love with a God who has abandoned his child to die. That is the reality of Lent. But the intensity of our grief 
corresponds to the depth of our love. Somerset Maugham wrote, the great tragedy of life is not that men perish, but that they cease to love. And someone I think I like more than Somerset Maugham, John, in 1 John wrote this, we have crossed over from death to life. We know this because we love our brothers. The man who does not love is still in the realm of death. I went to, to Loyola Hospital a few weeks ago. I was telling the nurse there about this talk I was going to give. And then she startled me when she said, you know, dying is hard work. Dying is exhausting. And I thought about that. That final work of your life, actually dying, it's physically taxing. It's demanding not just on you, but everyone around you. And it is work. And then I thought more than that, I, said, I thought, you know, dying does not just happen to you. It is something that you do. It is something that you can actually can take some control of and how you live as you die. Uh, we've been, there's been an ongoing debate through this whole series about grace versus works, grace or works. Death shows us that grace is not set against work or the law. Death is a work of sacrificial love. And if you go back to the beginning, before Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.26, God confers with God, confers with God or the Trinity, and God says, let us make human being, the human being, anthropos, in our image. And I realized, you know what? This was a divine work. This was a divine project. This was the work of love. And Adam and Eve kind of blew it, but God had a different person in mind to finish that work. As he is dying, Jesus looks back and he shouts out this benediction. It is finished. Matthew and Mark, Jesus asks the question, John's Gospel resolves the question with a benediction. Christ goes to work on the cross, and when he's done, he shouts, it is finished. And the ultimate paradox, the cross and the tree of life are one and the same. I look at that, whenever I take communion out, I look at that mural, Joel, because that's what sends me out. The cross and the tree of life are one and the same. Jesus made it so. What's finished God's work, what God started back in Genesis? The making of the true human being. Jesus' dying work was a creative work of love. Dying was a means by which he achieved his goal of becoming the first human being. And you know who spoke at first unwittingly and surprisingly? That nasty character, Pilate, when he says, Behold the human being. Death does not annihilate our human identity, it completes it in Christ. John Bear writes, turned inside out, death now becomes a means whereby the creature returns to God and in fact is fashioned by God as a living human being. And what makes us fully human is love. Love consummated in death for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die. To love is to die, to die is to love. When my son Bentley was very little, or maybe it was my daughter Chelsea. I think it was Bentley. When he left us, when he was six, he would always say, I love you, Dad. And then uh, at one point he took me aside and said, Dad, you know why I always say I love you? I said, why, Bentley? Because, he said, whenever I leave you, if I don't see you again, I want you to know.
My son had death in his mind and love in his heart. Love is as strong as death. Jesus had death in his mind and love in his heart. Love is as strong as death. Jesus was obedient unto death when he asked the question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken you? We don't know what the Father said back to him, but I bet what Jesus heard deep in his heart was, I love you. After all, in those critical transitions in Jesus' life, at his baptism, at his transfiguration, what did he hear? I love you. And when people are approaching the end, guess what comes out? Forgiveness. Forgive me. I love you. Our true, our most glorious humanity is most evident in our dying. And when our loved ones die, we don't love them less, we love them more. Love is as strong as death. Love never fails. When my dad died, the last one to be with him for a significant amount of time was my brother Dick. Dick is a skeptic. He was estranged from my father for most of his life. But Dick writes this, and a day before he died, my father listened to poems. He sang song with garbled tongue and a pure heart, and he put his hand on my knee and he prayed for me. I could not understand the words, but I understood the love. And I'm sure that his prayer for me was very specific in its content. I have the remainder of my lifetime to figure it out. In his dying, my father had a benediction blessing for his eldest son. And it changed Dick's life. Well, I guess that's it. That's the end.